one of my four hopes or one of my four desires for this time as we study was that we would grow in our own hope and joy, that we would grow and have an increasing joy as we walk, walk through it and gain confidence in what God has done. Now, that's the purpose for which Luke wrote. He wrote to Theophilus, and he tells Theophilus in the opening passages that he, he, he's writing and he's putting together this orderly account so that uh, Theophilus can be confident, so that he can be certain in what he has learned about what God has done and who God is. And, and, and so ultimately, though, we see as he goes on that he's, not just, he's just not seeking confidence. Like he moves immediately from uh, this introduction into some of the most joy-filled passages in all of the New Testament, in all of the Scripture, to, to be fair. Um, in fact, R. Kent Hughes is a commentator. He wrote a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and he notes in his commentary that Luke uses the word or the verb to rejoice more than any other New Testament letter, New Testament book. It's used more often in Luke than it is in any other New Testament letter. There are there are stories and parables uh, that Jesus tells to and, and examples of joy throughout the book. And these first two chapters are rich with this joyous celebration of God bringing His Son into the world bringing him into flesh and to dwell among us and to live the perfect life. It is full of joy and reasons to celebrate. And that, that's exactly what I think Luke wanted for Theophilus, was that as he gained confidence, he wanted Theophilus not just to, not just to increase in his knowledge, not just to have a transfer of information, but in his growing confidence, in his growing understanding and confidence in who God is and what God has done, he wanted Theophilus, I think, to increase in his joy, in his happiness. Who doesn't want that, right? I mean, is there a person in this room that wouldn't like to be happier today than they were yesterday or happier a year from now than they are today? I, we, want, we want happiness, I long for this church to be full of joy. But, but as I say that, I'm not talking about a joy that is, that is uh, found in temporal things or things that fade, things that let us down. I, I long for us to grow in our confidence in the God that is and the God that works so, we, so that we will be full of joy. I wonder, though, are we really... Are we really rejoicing in our lives? Are we really marked with joy? Is our lives, are our lives marked by joy? I mean, I just consider where you are today. The circumstances of your life, are you, are, are, are you able, even in the midst of whatever circumstance you find yourself, to rejoice? I mean, it, we just sang songs about all that Jesus has done for us and thanked Him for it, but... <clears throat> Is your spirit swelling with joy at the thought of his work on your behalf? What's robbing it? What's keeping us from that? What keeps us from rejoicing? What, what keeps us from, from being swollen up with joy that as we worship, our hearts are stirred? What keeps us from, from rejoicing in such a way that as people come into our church, that, that they experience a people who are so full of joy? that it is unmistakable, that it beats any program or methodology or, or show or presentation that can be put on. Are we really rejoicing? We're going to begin 
Today in our study, we're, we're going to look at reasons to rejoice. We're going to look at Mary and, and the results of what God has done for her and through her. And we're going to see reasons to rejoice. We're going to, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 39 uh, through 56. We're going to focus most heavily on verses 46 through 56. But, but I want to read the context because what she does, the words she says... Are, are, are tied exactly to the passage that you studied last week. So for the, for the purpose of context, we're going to read the whole passage, um, and, and then we'll just look at our reasons to rejoice. So if you would, read with me Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's just stop right there and get the context and remember exactly what's going on. Gabriel, an angel from God, shows up to Mary, tells her, as a virgin, you're going to be pregnant. She's like, how is that going to happen? I've never been with a man, so how can that that be? And he gives her a brief explanation, sorry, I don't know why I was having trouble getting that out. He gives her a brief explanation of how that's going to come to pass. And and then he tells her, not only are you going to get pregnant by the power of God, but your relative, maybe like her cousin, your relative, Elizabeth, has already been made pregnant. She's about six months pregnant, and and he's going to be the forerunner of Christ. And so she's just excited. She's moved with with emotion, I think. She probably is... uh, She's ecstatic about what's going to happen. And it tells us right here at the beginning in verse 39, in those days, Mary Rose went with haste into the hill country. She's going to visit Elizabeth. Now, we don't know exactly what sent her. It could have been because she was so excited to hear this barren woman had finally gotten pregnant. It could have been to go and celebrate with her, to to talk to her about the experience of of what had happened and and how they found out that this was going to be a, a miracle baby. It could be that Mary was so alone in what she's about to experience. I mean, just consider her circumstance. She's a a virgin who doesn't have a husband yet. She's engaged. She's betrothed. It's It's the real deal, but there's been no consummation of the marriage. There's been no marriage ceremony, no consummation. And so she's never been with a man. And here she is. She's about to start, you know, she's going to be pregnant. She's going to start showing. There's not going to be any hiding. It's going to happen. People are going to know. People are going to find out. What am I going to do? This is punishable by death. I mean, it was really, she could have been stoned for this. It was a big deal in her culture, in her context. It could, have, it could have caused a lot of problems. Mary may have wanted to talk to Elizabeth because Elizabeth, while she wasn't outside of wedlock, while she wasn't uh, unmarried and, and wasn't facing the exact same circumstances, she, like Mary, Elizabeth had been made pregnant miraculously. Who else could understand what Mary was experiencing? Who else was going to believe it? Except someone else who had heard from Gabriel's mouth that, that you're going to bear a son. 
So Zachariah and Elizabeth, she goes to visit them. She, she enters into the house. She says her greeting. It's a big deal. Greetings are a big deal in that culture. She says her greeting, and Elizabeth immediately is, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this profound thing happens in this experience. Mary sees with her eyes what the angel has told her would be true. Elizabeth is about six months pregnant at, at, at this time. So she, she walks in, and she sees Elizabeth. Affirmation number one, what the angel said is true. Elizabeth is really pregnant. Then, filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth begins to speak. And she says some things that are pretty crazy when you start to think about it. The mother of my Lord has greeted me, has come to greet me. What? Affirmation number two. The baby that's going to be put in your womb, the baby that, you're, that she's pregnant with in this moment as she walks into that house is the Lord. He, Gabriel had said that he was going to be the son of God, that he was going to be called holy. And here, by this inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth proclaims it. And doesn't just proclaim it herself, but then points out that her, her own baby inside of her womb before birth is rejoicing that Jesus has come to his house. Affirmation number three. She is being confirmation upon confirmation. She's seeing it and experiencing it. She's heard it from Gabriel, so now she's experiencing it in her walk. And I want to point out something It's really important before we move on. But listen to what Elizabeth says in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed. We know she believed because she got up and she went to, to, from her house to the mountains of Judea. Of Judah. We know that she, she believed at some level, but now, that now there's this proclamation that she believes. It's going to be very important to remember as we work our way through this. She believed. But not only do we need to remember it, you see, this is the very thing that motivates her response. She believed what she had been told was going to happen. And so, Mary responds, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, I'm tempering it a little bit. I think this is probably said with much more enthusiasm. I'd scare you. I don't want to shout at you this, this early in the sermon. So hold him back. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, she is overflowing with words of worship that are motivated by this joy and this exuberance that she's feeling in her soul. She is overflowing with worship and overflowing with praises is bubbling up out of her. She couldn't contain it. My soul magnifies it, exalts it, and makes much of Him. The Lord and my spirit rejoices. I mean, it's celebrating. It's, it's, it's feeling happiness and it's expressing happiness in God, my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his whole and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, and he has filled the hungry 
with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's not a temporary thing. It's not a, it's not a once in a lifetime kind of thing. This is work he is about doing forever. And Mary, verse 56, Mary returned with her, or re- remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So we see that in the midst of this, the narrative continues. God's work is not complete. There's more for us to hear. There's more for us to learn. But, but, but in, this, in this moment, in this, in this instant where Mary enters into this house and, and, and sees her and sees the announcement that she's been given from Gabriel confirmed in her experience before her and hearing from God through Elizabeth and, and hearing about John the Baptist's re- response from the womb and seeing, and seeing that this barren woman had been made pregnant. She believes and she rejoices. Do we rejoice like this? Do we recognize that we, just like Mary, we have a reason to rejoice? The very same reasons to rejoice, we we have them. Now, Gabriel didn't show up on my doorstep. And he didn't tell me I was going to carry a a baby. Now, that would be a miracle, right? He didn't tell me that. But that doesn't negate the fact that I, just like Mary, just like you, have reason to rejoice. She's so moved by what she is seeing and what she is hearing that she can't help but singing out. She she can't help but look at this God who has shown himself to her and worked for her. It's unfortunate And, and in so many cases that this, that this passage gets twisted and, and, and people use it to try and point to Mary as if she is the object of it or the purpose of it. I think that would make Mary sick because she's not trying to call attention to herself even as she talks about being called blessed by all generations. I don't think she's at all calling attention to herself but pointing attention to the God who is and the God who works. And that's the God we have to worship. That's the God that gives us reason to rejoice. The very same reasons that she has to rejoice. And then we're going to deal with two of those. I think the two most plain and two most uh, explicit in this passage are, are demonstrated. The first is that we can rejoice in God's identity. And this, is, this is what Mary points to. The God that she is rejoicing as a result of who he is. In his classic work, Knowing God, it's a, a book, I'm just, I would commend this book to you. Outside of the Bible, it's one that I would commend to you maybe over any others. It's by a guy named J.I. Packer. It's a book called Knowing God. It is profound. And I would commend you to read it and read it again and maybe even read it again. The reality is, is that knowing our God is the greatest pursuit of our life. But he writes in response to a question that he assumes is going to be asked. In this book, he writes this. The question clearly assumes that a study of the nature and character of God will be impractical and irrelevant for life. In fact, however, it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Now, I'm going to stop right there before I read the rest of it because I, 
I want, you to, I want you to be able to get into this with me because there's a reality that we all kind of reside in this place where we don't necessarily put the weight on knowing God that it deserves. I mean, we're always told that oh, the truth, we've got to make it relevant. You know, that we've got to figure out a way to make it practical. That we've got to figure out a way to make it mean something to us. And, oh man, we can set aside the studies of doctrine and theology because they don't make a difference in my daily life. We're told to trust in methodology and, and performance and achievement. His perspective, though, is slightly different. In fact, however, he writes, it is, most practi- it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London to put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square. And I don't know, I I probably just totally butchered the name of that. Trafalgar Square, I don't know what it is. It's probably something like Times Square in New York. Put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves when we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life in it is disappointing and unpleasant business. For those who do not know about God, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded. As it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you, this way can waste your life and lose your soul. There is no greater pursuit than striving to know the God that is. Yeah. I can come every week and I can give you self-help sermons and I can give you 12-step programs and I can tell you the five steps to joy, but none of them will outweigh this one. It starts with knowing the God that is, and that's exactly where Mary starts. That's exactly what she wants us to see. She says, "My, my soul magnifies the Lord. She begins to name Him. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, in a world that's, that's in pursuit of godless, godless achievements and in pursuit of godless success and in pursuit of godless relationships and godless identities, we need to be reminded that our joy doesn't come from any of those things. It comes from the God who has shown himself. The God who has called himself, made himself known. And she shows him to us in his name. She calls him the Lord. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his, uh, of his ultimate authority. There is no one who sits above him and determines things beside him. He determines everything on his own. He's not seeking advice from his creation. He's not looking at us and saying, hey, I don't, I don't feel like I can say this to you, but... Kind of messed up there. He's the one that determines right from wrong. He's the one that decrees what will happen. He's the one that ordains every moment, of every second of every day. He's the one who sits in authority over these things. 
And all things answer to that authority, even if it doesn't look like they do in that day. There comes a day when all things will answer to the authority of God. And she calls him God. My spirit rejoices in God, Theos. is demonstrating his divinity. It's demonstrating his transcendent nature across times and generations. It's demonstrating his his, uh, worthiness of worship. He is God. God of gods. There is no other God. He alone belongs in the place of God. Constantly, constantly striving to replace him. He is Savior. I mean, these two ideas, these two ideas about his name, Lord and God, that, that, that gives us something to look about, gives us something to think about, but he's not just named these things. He's not just Lord and God, distant and unknowable, distant and untouchable, distant and unexperienceable. He is Savior. You see, this Lord and God who says what is and isn't, who sits over all things with sovereignty, this God who transcends all times and places and generations, this God is your Savior. He came close to you. He came to deliver you. He came to get you when you were needing saving. He is the one who did it. This is your God. And it's not just His name. I mean, there's so much in his name, but it's not just his name. I mean, we are more than our names, right? I'm more than Seth. You're more than your name. And she shows us, she, this, this young girl, not even experienced enough yet to have been married, this young girl calls out his attributes. Those, those pieces of his nature that are intrinsic to who he is and make him who he is. She says it in verse 49 that he is mighty. For he who is mighty has done great things. That means he's powerful. It means he's strong. It means that he can, he can accomplish, that he's able, that he can do the things he says he's going to do. If we just take a moment and consider the miracles of, of just this few verses that we've studied in these last weeks. Consider the story of Elizabeth, a woman barren. Consider the story of Mary, a woman who is a virgin. And in both cases, he's put life where it wasn't able to exist on its own. He made the, bird, the barren fertile, and he made the virgin hold a baby. That's huge. It's simple to gloss over this because we look at it every year, right? I mean, the virgin birth, uh, we celebrate it every year, but we don't stop and think about the power that it takes to make this happen. We don't think about the power that it takes to, to sit in authority as Lord. We don't think about the power it takes to sit as sovereign God. But He is powerful. And we see it from beginning to end in the Scripture all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where he speaks, let there be light, and the light can't help but shine. Where he says, let the light be separated from the darkness and day and night will exist and they can't help but do it. Where he puts his hands in the dust and forms a man and and then eventually pulls a rib from that man and forms a woman. 
That's power. To take nothing and make something exist in it. That's power. He is strong. And all the way in to to Revelation 22, when at the end he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And I am coming to rule forever. You see, he is more powerful than any throne or kingdom that we have ever known. There will be no end to his reign. He will sit in sovereignty of all things for all times. He has power. He is mighty. He is holy, she says. In verse 49, again, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This speaks of his purity, his separation from sin, and his his distinction from creation. He's pure, he's without fault, he's without darkness or shadow. But in this context, I think it goes even further because it's not just referencing who he is, but what he does. All of his works are holy, all of his works are pure, all of his works are good, even even when we say they aren't, even when they don't feel like it to us, everything he does is holy. Everything he does is pure. Everything he does is without sin. There is no darkness in him. There is no shadow. He, he is holy. He never wakes up in a bad mood seeking just to simply destroy something because I slept on, uh, I got a headache or, or I didn't sleep on the right side of the, I got up on the wrong side of the bed. He doesn't, he's not bipolar. He's not the person that you call and you're not sure who you're going to talk to on the other end of the line because today's a bad day for them. He is holy, always holy, through and through holy. He was always pure, always good, always perfect. In fact, that's the attribute that seems to be most emphasized in the Scripture. It's what the angels were singing as they gathered around his throne, as Isaiah stood looking at his, at his Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. He sees the angels around the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And one pastor points out, you know, one pastor points out that they weren't singing justice, 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 and they weren't singing love, 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 and we don't ever see those exemplified to that level of emphasis in the scripture, even though we know God is love and we know all that God does is just. But it seems his his word seems to emphasize that he is holy. He's totally distinct, totally pure. Completely through and through, holy God. Those two things are important. We, we, can't, we, we, we can't deny them. But, but I just want you to think for just a second. If all he is is holy, and all he is is powerful, what does that mean for us? See, Mary doesn't stop with that. Because he's not just holy. And he's not just powerful. But in verse 50, she says, And his mercy is for those who fear him. Here's the thing. If he was only 
holy and he was only powerful, you better believe we better be quaking in our boots because we are not holy on our own. And we are incapable of standing before him by ourselves. And when we stop and get real for just a moment, just get real about who we are and what we deserve before this holy God, we should quake with fear. But he doesn't leave us there. It's the beauty of this, of, of this attribute. He doesn't stop. He doesn't leave us in it because as we, as we bow before him in, in, in fear, he says, for you I have mercy. I have compassion and concern that moves me to action. I, I'm so concerned and compassionate to put on you that I am going to make you righteous. I am going to pay the price for your justice. I am so merciful that I long for you to have what you cannot earn and do for you the things you cannot do. This is the God who Mary saw. This is the God who is Lord and God and Savior for you. Do you believe it? You see, that's the question. That's the concern. That's, that's, what, that, that's what we need to be figuring out today is do we really believe it? This Lord and God and Savior who sits mighty and holy and merciful. Are we believing in Him? Are we trusting Him? You see, there is rejoicing in knowing the God that is. Rejoicing in His identity. But that's not the only reason we have to rejoice. We can rejoice in God's work. If he was these things, if he, if, if he was defined by these attributes, but he sat in heaven distant and unknowable, then why would we rejoice? Why would we have joy? But he came and he did a work on our behalf, in our presence. I remember one time I was in this Bible study. I was leading it, actually, and the point was being made that, that being, praising God for the things that he's done. And this guy, I think he had the best of intentions. I think he was trying to emphasize his identity, and I, I think he had good intentions in it, but he pushes back against this idea that we should be praising God for what he's done because ultimately we praise him for things he's done for us, right? I mean, and that seems kind of selfish and we God is just worship worthy and we shouldn't be focusing on his works we should be focusing on who he is but man what would Mary have to say if she wasn't thinking about what he'd done I mean truly all of her words I mean she names him and she gives us some attributes but her name her her praise her rejoicing is given because of what he's done she spends the most words on what he's done. The truth is this, is that because God is who he is, we can rejoice in the things he does. If he wasn't God, holy, mighty, and merciful, there wouldn't be much reason to rejoice. And because he has done what he has done, we can rejoice in who he is. It would be wrong to separate these two things. He is who he is, and because of that, he does what he does. 
If he wasn't holy or, or powerful or merciful, there would be no reason for us to rejoice at all. No reason for us to experience any level of happiness in this world. If he wasn't mighty, he couldn't accomplish the things that he says he's going to accomplish. He couldn't save you. If he wasn't mighty, how would he make the the virgin be pregnant? How could he open the womb of a barren woman? If he wasn't holy, he would be evil like the rest of us. That's not a God worth rejoicing over. That's not a God who gives us joy. Instead, it's a God who would sit over us as a taskmaster, using and abusing. He'd be evil just like the rest of us. If he wasn't merciful... We've already established that, haven't we? We'd better be afraid. The awe and the respect and reverence we, that, that, that we have for this great God, it better cause us to quake in our boots if we remove His mercy. But He is all these things. And because He is all these things, what He does is for our Good. And Mary calls them out. She, she calls out first. She starts really with personal things that he's done for her. He's, she, she looks at how he's worked in her life. And she does that all the way through about verse 50 and then turns over to speaking about what he's done for others. But he, she, personally, she talks about that he's mindful of her. In verse 40, uh, 40, uh, 48, he, she says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's mindful of her. He sees her. He he knows what's going on in her life. He's able to watch her. And he knows. He knows who she is. And he's done great things for her. I mean, consider this, this honor that she's been given. Consider this honor of carrying the Son of God. Would you like to play a role like that in redemptive history? I mean... Wouldn't that make you recognize that he looks at you as special? Wouldn't, wouldn't it say something uh, I mean, about what God thinks and feels about you if he gave you this role to carry his son? He's done great things for her. In fact, she goes on to say that he's, he, what he's done is, is going to cause people to call me blessed for all generations. The truth is, is this is not about Mary puffing herself up and saying, hey, look, I'm going to be blessed and I'm, people are going to be looking at me as if I'm some, some hot shot. And she's calling attention to God's work in her, but then she does point out that because of it, she is blessed. Her name made the pages of Scripture because of what he did, not because of who she is. I mean, think of the role that he gave her. His work goes beyond Mary, well beyond her experience. You see, our God is a God who sets things right, who, who works and is worthy of praise and adoration for it. And she, she moves beyond herself in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him, moving Beyond herself, from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Let's just think about that. There's so many things we could draw out. Just let me, just let me point out three. He has brought down the proud and powerful. The scripture is clear that God opposes the proud. Gives grace to the humble. 
The truth is, the thing that should in some way set us on edge is that in some way we are all the proud. There's not a person in this room that doesn't in some way struggle against pride. At the heart of every sin is pride. Us determining that we don't need God. That we have a better way or a better plan than God. That we know better than He does. That our intellect, that our intelligence, that our ability, that our being is better than God's. Everything we do that is rebellious starts with us having to, to, to determine that God or His way is not good enough for us. That is pride. And for those of us that, that live in this, it's really dangerous. Because the reality is, is, as she says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Without his help, we won't even realize it. You see, the reality is, you're sitting here right now thinking, man, I hope so-and-so is listening because they need to hear this. You need to hear this. Well, I could preach this sermon better than Seth. Yeah, you probably could, but you need to hear this. If my boss would just listen to what I say and and do it the way I think he should or she should, then this company would be worth working for. You need to hear this. If my spouse would do as I expected and do as... And, and listen to what I'm saying. You need to hear this. We all, in some fashion or form, struggle with pride. And the danger is, because of it, we can't even tell. And it sounds sounds terrible that he gives them over to this this. He, he, he breaks them down and, and he overthrows the thrones of those who are ruling. And it sounds so bad. It sounds like, well, that doesn't sound good. And it doesn't sound, you know, that just sounds like, that's, that's harsh. Brothers and sisters, there is no better place to be, no greater act of mercy than for God to put you in a place where you, are, you, you have no choice but to be humbled before him. What we need more than we need the, the food we eat and the things we buy and the, and the kingdoms we build, more than we need that is we need to be humbled before God. Because in our pride, He gives us over, causes confusion, and, 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 and allows us to live in this place of deceit. But... But he has exalted the humble. You see, this is an act of mercy. If he puts a person in a place where they can't help but be humbled, where they can't help but see what they deserve, then this is an act of mercy. It's a, it's a good thing on their behalf because now they can be humbled before him and be exalted by him. He exalts the humble. He raises them up. I mean, just consider 
what he's done with with Mary. He didn't go to the palaces or the princesses. He didn't go to the well-funded. He didn't go to the big notable places or the notable houses of Jerusalem. He didn't go to to those who had prominence and, and position in culture. He went to a little farm girl in a little farm town and he made her pregnant and he said, you're going to carry my son. He exalted her. He did great things for her. He saved her. This is what we need. This is what we should long for. He does this work on our behalf. And he has filled the hungry. I mean, he has filled the hungry. There's a sense that, that he has given us more than we need, that, that it's up to the top, you know, where we have it all, that we're not left wanting, that we're not left in need. He has filled the hungry. We may not ever be rich. We may not ever achieve the American dream. It may always ex- escape us. But in Christ, we are never left without. We have been lavished with grace. We have received his great mercy. We have been brought into the family of our Lord and God. I love Tim Keller's quote that kind of speaks to this. He says, your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. He has filled hungry. Like Mary, we have these reasons to rejoice. He, he has worked for us. He has shown himself to us. We can know him. We can experience him. We can be so full of joy. But is that what marks our lives? Are we rejoicing? The people who know you outside of this room, is that how they would speak of you? Is that a trait they would affirm in you? Maybe, maybe you're here today and, 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 and it is. Please don't get proud in that, but thank God for it. Be glad that he has done that work, that you are full of joy and rejoicing in his name and in his work. But for the rest of us, why aren't we? Why don't we rejoice like this? Like, why why are we straggling in to sing praises to our God? Why is it that, that the, the, the last thing we typically pick up is our Bible or the, the last thing that we depend on is prayer? Why is it that we're not stirred when we hear songs that speak of His, of His, His might and His power? Why isn't that we, we, we can, we're not moved to just cry out to His glory? Why is it that there are those moments, those, those instances that we can look at and we can, we can say, yeah, I, I rejoice sometimes. But why is it that so often for us that joy is so fleeting? I think the text gives us two reasons. And one is rooted really in what we saw Mary doing and how we saw her responding. 
I told you to remember this, that it would be important. Why did she sing? Why was she rejoicing? Because she believed. See, I think we don't rejoice, that we don't, our lives aren't consistently marked by joy because we don't believe. I don't, I don't intend to tell you that, I don't want to challenge you in your Christian faith. That's not my intent at all, so please don't hear that. I, 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 I want us, though, to, to think. What do we really believe in? I want us to, 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 to look at how we prioritize it. I, I know we believe in part. But I know we struggle with unbelief. We believe in all kinds of other things. And those things rob your joy. We believe in the things that people say about us. We believe in the things that, we, that, that, that people think about us. Or even the ideas of what people think about us. Instead of listening to what God has said about us. We believe in our abilities, in our performance, as if in some way we can finally measure up and finally do enough to be good. We believe in our methodology as if, if we do all the right things that we can achieve the right, the, the right success. Listen. We have to use methods God's given us our abilities. And there are things we need to be doing. But they will never be able to sustain you in joy. Do not look to them. It's great to get a pat on the back from a friend. It's good actually to hear critiques that are intended for good. Let every critic be, uh, be a teacher. But in the end, don't let them determine who you are based on their perspective. What does God's word say about you? What does God, the one who sits in authority, say about you? The one who sees all things, what does he say about you? The one who saved you, what does he say about you? Your joy will always be found in connection to the, to the depth of your faith in God. And when we believe in other things, when we struggle in this unbelief, we will be robbed of joy. And second, I think we can't rejoice because of our pride. Because in our pride, in our pride, we are scattered in the thoughts of our heart. We're not seeing things for what they really are. We're not seeing ourselves in the right place. All too often, we're puffing ourselves up. We're placing ourselves where only God belongs. We begin to feel entitled to the work that He's done and as if in some way we deserve it. And then, and, and then, why isn't he doing more? Why isn't he living up to my expectation better? Why is he letting me endure this? I don't deserve this. What did I do to deserve this? 
Why do I have to pick up a cross and follow him? Doesn't he he know who I am? Brothers and sisters, in order to pursue humility in a very humble way, consider your salvation and the God who supplied it. What did he do to save you? What price did he pay that you might be called his child? Who is the one who did that work? And consider your sin. We all have it. Consider your sin and what you really deserve from him. When we do that, we will see God's grace, we will see his mercy, we will see his holiness, we will see his might. And then we will be able to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would open our eyes to our pride. Reveal our need for you. Reveal our dependence on you. And reveal the hope that we can have in you. The joy that we can experience because of you. Thank you for your word that we can know who you are. Thank you that you didn't stay distant and and so far away that we would only be guessing or blind to the fact of your existence altogether. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for working on our behalf, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, paying the price for what we couldn't earn. Thank you. Father, I just pray in these moments that you'd send your spirit on your people here. Humble us. Show us the work that you've done in this present moment. That this, that, that this, this church and the lives of its people might be marked by your joy. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.